You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. We all fell in love with Ford, you know, because it had been so awful at the White House for so long and so mean. I remember the day that Nixon left the White House and I'd been sent out to uh, Andrews Air Force Base to see him off. I, I'm... You know, I saw him wave from Air Force One for the last time as president. And then halfway to California, Gerald Ford became president because the idea was at noon of that day, uh, his resignation would be effective. So I did not get to see uh, Ford being sworn in and, and all of that. But I got there in time to see him introduce his new press secretary, who was a guy named Jerry Jahorst, who was a friend of mine. He was a little guy, Jerry was, and uh, he is. And uh, when Ford brought him into the press room, uh, he said, I want you to meet the man's going to be the new press secretary. He's one of your own, Jerry Terhorst. And Peter Lissagor, who worked for the Chicago paper, said, hold him up so we can all see him, you know. And the room just erupted into laughter, including from, from President Ford. It was the first time anybody had laughed in that press room in two years. You know, it was just like after a hard rain, it finally stops and everything's different. That's the way it was in that press room. It had been such a difficult uh, time while Nixon was president. And then then everything just changed overnight. So, you know, we all did stories about how he made his own breakfast, President Ford, and, and you know, how he went swimming uh, every day. And, and, uh, and then, of course, when he pardoned Nixon, it just, uh, you know, shocked everybody. And so then it was, we had a hard time with that. But I think uh, before he left office, we all came to to really admire him, Uh, even though at that time I wasn't ready to forgive him for pardoning Nixon. Nineteen seventy-six was the first presidential campaign debate that there'd been in sixteen years. It was the first one that a president had ever participated in. Ford needed all the help he could get. He was way behind Carter. He needed to show that he could be commanding in a big in front of a big audience. He needed to essentially reset the campaign. Carter wanted to show that even though he'd been a governor, he could play on these foreign policy questions, and and so there were reasons for both of them to go and uh, face off against each other. There's seven minutes from the debate being over. Carter starts an answer in the middle. Audio goes out. Among our people and the... Nobody knows what's going on in the audience. And for 26 minutes, they can't get the audio back on the, all three networks. We have had no indication uh, from the technical side as to what the problem is there or what the prospects are for clearing it up. Ford and Carter are both standing there. They don't move like they've been like two kids who've been punished and sent to go, you know, think about what they've done to the country. And they just have to stand there until the the problem gets fixed. And then once it does get fixed, Uh, he will conclude that response now. You know, then they go on with the last six and a half minutes of the uh, of the debate. But they spent almost more time standing in silence next to each other than they did actually talking in the second debate. Gerald Ford is asked a question by Max Frankel, who had been the Soviet bureau chief for the New York Times, about the Helsinki Accords and whether uh, the United States was basically capitulating to the idea that the Soviets had dominion over Eastern Europe. There is no Soviet domination 
of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Max Frankel just uh, gives this kind of quizzical, wait a minute, uh, can I follow up, Mr. President? Did you really mean to say? I'm sorry, could I just follow? Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not using Eastern Europe as their own sphere of influence and occupying most of the countries there and, and, and making sure with their troops that it's, a, that it's a communist zone, whereas on our side of the line, the Italians and the French are still flirting with possibility. I don't believe, uh, Mr. Frankel, that uh, the Yugoslavians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Romanians consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. I don't believe that the Poles consider themselves dominated by the Soviet Union. Each of those countries is independent, autonomous. It has its own territorial integrity. And the United States does not concede that those countries are under the domination of the Soviet Union. And Jimmy Carter had been making the case that Henry Kissinger was the one running foreign policy for the White House, not Gerald Ford. And so here was Gerald Ford saying, well, if you want a good example of that, To be fair to Ford, what he was trying to say is, even though there were Soviet armored divisions in Poland, he felt the indomitable will of the Polish people would never be uh, subjugated by these Soviets. So he was making a claim about the people in the country, not the geopolitical arrangement of the country. But again, because the narrative was set beforehand, the gaffe fell into it, and there's no way to explain your way out of that. Tonight's debate focuses on domestic issues and economic policy. Questions will be put by Frank Reynolds of ABC News, James Gannon of the Wall Street Journal, and Elizabeth Drew of the New Yorker magazine. Under the agreed rules, the first question will go to Governor Carter. That was decided by the toss of a coin. He will have up to three minutes to answer. One follow-up question will be permitted with up to two minutes to reply. President Ford will then have two minutes to respond. There is a considerable anti-Washington feeling throughout the country. But I think the feeling is misplaced. In the last two years, we have restored integrity in the White House, and we've set high standards in the executive branch of the government. Addition, see that uh, in the last uh, four years, the number of employees hired by the Congress has gone up substantially. Uh, much more than uh, the gross national product, much more than any other increase throughout our society. Congress is hiring people by the droves, and the cost as a result has gone up. And I don't see any improvement in the performance of the Congress under the present leadership. Well, it's not a matter of uh, Nixon and Eisenhower. They passed about 60 to 75 percent of their legislation. This year, Mr. Ford will not pass more than 26% of all the legislative proposals he puts forward. This is government by stalemate. So I feel in that case, as well as in the reorganization of the intelligence agencies, as I've done, we have to do it by executive order. And I'm glad that we have a good director in George Bush. We have good executive orders. And the CIA and the DIA and NASA, or the NSA, are now doing a good job under proper supervision. Governor Carter? Well, one of the very serious things that's happened in our government in recent years, and has continued uh, up until now, is a breakdown in the trust among our people and the... 
the pool broadcasters from Philadelphia have temporarily lost the audio. It is not a conspiracy against Governor Carter or President Ford, and they will fix it as soon as possible. This debate is now within about uh, eight minutes of its close, and in spite of the fact that this was under the auspices of the League of Women Voters, The pool audio from Philadelphia has been lost momentarily. We hope to have it back any minute. We don't know what's happened to it. Again, the pool audio from the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia has been lost. We hope for the moment. We are, needless to say, trying to restore it do not know what has happened to it. Both candidates have lost a more or less equal number of of their words. I can't hear them either, so I don't know what it is we're not hearing. I think they have stopped because they have been told the uh, sound has been lost. I think they've stopped talking. Whatever happened, we hope to have it fixed shortly. I wish I could tell you more about it, but that's all I know. I might say a word here that I planned to say later when the uh, debate was over. And in fact, probably will say it again when the debate is over. And it is that at 11.30 Eastern Time, which is to say two a uh, half hour from now, we will be back here with a special program in which we will ask people in the audience in the theater in Philadelphia as they leave, ask others in the area and whoever we can find whose views might be interesting, what they think about the debate, who they think won, if they care to put it that way, who they think scored the most points. John Chancellor and other members of our news staff are in Philadelphia and will be ready with this. As I say, that's at 11.30 Eastern Time, after a half-hour break for the local news across the country. And we'll be back with that, whatever happens to the audio from the theater at this time. And again, I don't know what's happened, except that we're not getting it. Nobody is getting it. It's the same on... Uh, it's the same everywhere, so you needn't change the channels looking for it. It's the same on all of them. It's still out, right? Doug Kiker is out. Uh, where is Doug? He is in the lobby just outside of uh, of the hall. Doug, you can't tell us what has happened there, can you? David, we don't know what's happened. Uh, we're as much surprised by what's going on as you are. Uh, they were talking and suddenly they quit. We all jumped up out here, too. As you know... Uh, this was a pool arrangement, uh, one network responsible, so all we're doing is standing by just the way you are. We expect uh, the debates to go on, of course, immediately that uh, audio is assumed. But what the problem is, how long it's going to take to fix it, whether the debate will have to be canceled or not, we just don't know. It is now time for the closing statements, which are to be up to four <coughs> minutes long. Governor Carter, by the same toss of the coin that directed the first question to you, you are to go first now. This is not the America that we've known in the past. 
is not the America that we have to have in the future. I don't claim to know all the answers, but I've got confidence in my country. Our economic strength is still there. Our system of government, in spite of Vietnam, Cambodia, CIA, Watergate, is still the best system of government on earth. And the greatest resource of all are the 215 million Americans who still have within us the strength, the character, the intelligence, the experience, the patriotism, the idealism, the compassion, the sense of brotherhood on which we can rely in the future to restore the greatness to our country. On November 2nd, all of you will make a very, very important decision. One of the major issues in this campaign is trust. A president should never promise more than he can deliver. And a president should always deliver everything that he's promised. A president can't be all things to all people. A president should be the same thing to all people. I think the real issue in this campaign, and that what you must decide on November 2nd, is whether you should vote for his promises or my performance in two years in the White House. The first presidential debates in 16 years, and this was the first with a president in it, uh, ends with a lot of technical difficulties and other issues, but gives you a good taste of what Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter uh, put out there to the public. And this second debate is going to be on foreign policy and features uh, Gerald Ford's uh, probably blunder that may also have helped uh, slow that momentum he had going. But um, the second debate is on foreign policy. Good evening, I'm Pauline Frederick of NPR, moderator of the second of the historic debates of the 1976 campaign between Gerald R. Ford of Michigan, Republican candidate for president, and Jimmy Carter of Georgia, Democratic candidate for president. Mr. Frankel, you have the first question for Governor Carter. Governor, since the Democrats last ran our foreign policy, including many of the men who are advising you, country has been relieved of the Vietnam agony and the military draft. We've started arms control negotiations with the Russians. We've opened relations with China. We've arranged the disengagement in the Middle East. We've regained influence with the Arabs without deserting Israel. Now maybe we've even begun a process of peaceful change in Africa. Now you've objected in this campaign to the style with which much of this was done. And you've mentioned some other things that, that you think ought to have been done. But do you really have a quarrel with this Republican record? Would you not have done any of those things? Well, I think this Republican administration has been almost all style and spectacular and not substance. We've uh, got a chance tonight to talk about, first of all, leadership, the character of our country, and a vision of the future. In every one of these instances, the Ford administration has failed. And I hope tonight that I and Mr. Ford will have a chance to discuss the reason for those failures. Our country is not strong anymore. We're not respected anymore. We can only be strong overseas if we're strong at home. And when I become president, we not only be strong in those areas, but also in defense. A defense capability second to none. We've lost in our foreign policy the character of the American people. We've uh, 
ignored or excluded the American people in the Congress from participation in the shaping of our foreign policy. It's been one of secrecy and exclusion. In addition to that, we've had a chance to become now, contrary to our long-standing beliefs and principles, the arms merchant of the whole world. We've tried to buy success from our enemies, and at the same time, we've excluded from the process the normal friendship of our allies. In addition to that, we've become fearful to compete with the Soviet Union on an equal basis. We talk about detente. The Soviet Union knows what they want in detente, and they've been getting it. We have not known what we've wanted, and we've been outtraded in almost every instance. The other point I want to make is about our defense. We've got to be a nation blessed with a defense capability that's efficient, tough, capable, well-organized, narrowly focused, fighting capability. The ability to fight, if necessary, is the best way to avoid the chance for or the requirement to fight. And the last point I want to make is this. Mr. Ford, Mr. Kissinger have uh, continued on with the policies and failures of Richard Nixon. Even the Republican platform has criticized the lack of leadership in Mr. Ford, and they've criticized the foreign policy of this administration. This is one instance where I agree with, with the Republican platform. I might say this in closing, and that is that as far as foreign policy goes, Mr. Kissinger has been the president of his country. Mr. Ford has shown an absence of leadership, an absence of a grasp of what this country is and what it ought to be. That's got to be changed, and that is one of the major issues in this uh, campaign of 1976. President Ford, would you like to respond? Governor Carter, again, is talking in broad generalities. Let me take just one question that he raised. The military strength and capability of the United States. Governor Carter, in November of 1975, indicated that he wanted to cut the defense budget by $15 billion. A few months later, he said he wanted to cut the defense budget by 8 or $9 billion. And more recently, he talks about cutting the defense budget by 5 to $7 billion. There is no way you can be strong militarily and have those kind of reductions in our military uh, appropriations. As a matter of fact, uh, I've never advocated any cut of $15 billion in our defense budget. As a matter of fact, Mr. Ford has made a political football out of the defense budget. About a year ago, he cut the Pentagon budget, $6.8 billion. After he fired James Schlesinger, the political heat got so great that he added back about $3 billion. When Ronald Reagan won the Texas primary election, Mr. Ford added back another $1.5 billion. Immediately before the Kansas City Convention, he added back another $1.8 billion in the defense budget. And his own uh, Office of Management and Budget testified that he had a $3 billion cut insurance added to the defense, to budget, defense budget under the pressure from the Pentagon. Obviously, this is another indication of trying to use the defense budget for political purposes, which he's trying to do tonight. Next up, the two vice presidential candidates take the stage. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, th this 76 campaign is really a campaign of giant figures in the last half of the 20th century. You have Ronald Reagan, who is emerging in this campaign. 
you got President Ford, who was the minority leader in the House for 24 years and ends up president because of the fall of President Nixon. You got Jimmy Carter, who ends up president because of Watergate and his his ability to to be the outsider who comes in. But he has a presidency here. You got Ronald. Uh, uh, Bob Dole, who will end up being the, not both the vice presidential candidate here, the Senate majority leader later, he'll run for president three times after this in 1980-1988, almost winning the nomination against jo- uh, George H.W. Bush. Or and but Bush you know, wins that nomination, he becomes the majority leader. You know, in the Senate, he is the majority leader in the Senate, but he becomes the point man for President Bush and Walter Mondale, who was a senator for many years from Minnesota who managed Hubert Humphrey's campaign in 68 or, and, and would be the presidential nominee in 84, who would pick the first woman to uh, to be on the on a national ticket in Geraldine Ferraro, but gets slaughtered by Ronald Reagan. Uh, but Mondale is a figure for many years on the national scene, and he'll come back later to serve uh, as an ambassador and a Senate candidate. Uh, and, and so Mondale has this huge career. And, and these are the guys who really kind of span out over the next 20 years in, in a political national life. Uh, you know, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Mondale, Dole, they're all here in 76. So this vice presidential debate is something pretty, pretty interesting. And it will have this blunder in it from my man, Bob Dole, that uh, would haunt him a long time because it, it made him look like a mean-spirited hatchet man, uh, which is couldn't be farther from the truth because Bob Dole was one of the funniest guys and and probably the most the nicest and most thoughtful political figure that I ever had any contact with, which is one of the reasons that I admired him so, and he was such a hero. But uh, this is not uh, his moment. Welcome back to our vice presidential debate special. I want to bring back in our panel Larry Sabato, Doug Weed, and Jonathan Darman. So, Doug. Let's jump right back into it. It's been 40 years since the first VP debate that was televised between Bob Dole and Walter Mondale. I'm going to shock our audience and say I was there for that. I wasn't in the room, but I was around during that debate. Uh, And there was a memorable moment from that debate when Dole was asked about his running mate's decision to pardon Richard Nixon. Let's listen to that. It is an appropriate topic, I guess, but it's not a very good issue any more than the war in Vietnam would be or World War II or World War I. Of the war in Korea, all Democrat wars, all in this century. I figured up the other day, if we added up the killed and wounded in Democrat wars in this century, it would be about 1.6 million Americans, enough to fill the city of Detroit. Now, if we want to go back and rake that over and over and over, we can do that. I assume Senator Mondale doesn't want to do that. But it seems to me that the pardon of Richard Nixon is behind us. Watergate's behind us. If we have this vision for America, and if we're really concerned about those people out there and their problems, yes, and their education and their jobs, we ought to be talking about that. I think uh, Senator Dole has richly earned his reputation as a hatchet man tonight by implying and stating that World War II and the Korean War were democratic wars. Does he really mean to suggest to the American people that there was a partisan difference over our involvement in the war to fight Nazi Germany. I don't think any reasonable American would accept that. 
All right. Uh, and I know we have three historians here with us. But first, I just got to talk about the optics of that debate. You've got this is just a different generation where you see Dole sort of like leaning casually. You can almost imagine that he has a cigarette like as he's debating <laughs> as he's debating Walter Mondale there. I mean, just the optics of that and the, and the measured tone, even as they attack each other, is something that we don't see anymore, uh, Doug, in debates at any level. Yeah, the debates now, the practice debates that I were part of were all videotaped and the candidates were forced to go through the whole process. I have worked with candidates who didn't want to do it, who said, no, no, I'm not going to stand in a ballroom and listen to somebody on my staff for 20 minutes. Uh, I just need to, you need to grill me on these questions. I need to develop my answers. But the really, the ones who won, they do the whole thing. They don't have the sniffling with the microphone you saw with Donald Trump because they've actually rehearsed it with cameras, with microphones, and they've gone through those boring parts when the other people had to talk to get the actual feel. And that's what we have uh, for true professionals today in these debates. And, Larry, that raises an interesting point. I wonder if in that exchange between uh, Dole and Mondale that that was not a coached response from Senator Dole. That was how he really felt. In other words, today, these candidates, except with the exception of Donald Trump, go through hours and hours and hours of debate practice where their handlers tell them, if somebody says this, you respond this way. But it's it, and I could be wrong. But is it in your analysis and your historical background, the fact that probably Dole was just really speaking off the cuff when he blamed the Democrats for all the past wars in, in the United States? Well, apparently he had mentioned this beforehand. Uh, he had used it on other occasions and it just hadn't been reported or it was in private circumstances. Obviously, it was a mistake. And, and Dole, in retrospect, realized that it was a mistake. It, uh, uh, Senator Dole had many, many uh, sterling moments in his long political career, but that was not one of them. And it did help the Democratic ticket. Uh, Jimmy Carter took up the uh, cause along with Walter Mondale. And did, Jonathan, do you recall if that became something that the media talked about? In other words, now we know that we live in a landscape where if you say one thing, if you make one, I mean, Twitter exploded when Donald Trump was sniffling into that microphone. Um, if that's something that Dole comment is something that the media. Right. I mean, reported. you didn't have people tweeting out right. Bob Dole's body language. Yes. Young people, Twitter did not exist <laughs> in 1976. But keep in mind, I mean, this was such a new phenomenon. Even in 1976, there were the 1960 debates and then there was a 16-year pause. So when, you, when you, 1976 comes around again and they reintroduce these debates, everyone understood this was a big deal. By then, it was a big part of the lore, how, how much of an effect it had had on the 1960 race. But there wasn't all the additional lore about preparation and about the sort of moments that can get you. Mm. Um, so Dole, I think, later on said he really didn't prepare that much for the debate, and he certainly didn't think about how lines that he might have been using out on the stump would, would actually have an impact on a national audience and how sort of poorly that would play in the country in 1977. Oh, it's really fascinating. Now up here is a third presidential debate. And these debates are the ones that really set the standard for what we see today in these debates. I know that there's the Harold Nixon versus Kennedy debates, but there would not be another set of presidential debates for 16 years. But now we do it every election cycle. And that starts here with Ford and Carter. And these are probably the one time that debates made a huge difference because this election was that razor thin close. And there are a lot of factors that could have led to Gerald Ford losing. But the fact is, even with the pardon, 
he had a huge amount of momentum going into election day, and that was because of his hard work. But a gaffe made during these debates about Poland and no Soviet domination of Poland uh, probably is the thing that I think myself probably te- you know tipped the scales toward Carter. It's so close it's hard to say, but 33 points it's pretty remarkable, but this is the, the the election more so probably than any other than maybe the Nixon Kennedy debates that these debates were that important to the outcome. They really are a big deal in 1976, and they are the foundation, really more so than the Nixon Kennedy debates, to what we have today in these presidential debates. Good evening. I'm Barbara Walters, moderator of the last of the debates of 1976 between Gerald R. Ford, Republican candidate for president, and Jimmy Carter, Democratic candidate for president. It has been determined that President Ford would take the first question in this last debate. And Mr. Kraft, you have that first question for President Ford. Mr. President, uh, I assume that the Americans all know that these are difficult times and that there's no pie in the sky and that they don't expect something for nothing. Uh, So I'd like to ask you as a first question, as you look ahead in the next four years, uh, what sacrifices are you going to call on the American people to make? What price are you going to ask them to pay uh, to realize your objectives? Uh, Let me add, uh, Governor Carter, that if if you felt... uh, that it was appropriate to answer that question in in your comments uh, as to what price it would be appropriate for the American people to pay uh, for a Carter administration, I think that would be proper too. Mr. President. Mr. Kraft, I believe that the American people in the next four years under a Ford administration will be called upon to make those necessary sacrifices to preserve the peace which we have. Which means, of course, that uh, we will have to maintain an adequate military capability. Which means, of course, that we will have to add, uh, I think, uh, a few billion dollars to our defense appropriations to make certain that we have adequate uh, strategic forces, adequate conventional forces. I think the American people will be called upon to... um, Uh, be in the forefront in giving leadership to the solution of those problems that must be solved in the Middle East, in Southern Africa, and any problems that might arise in the Pacific. The American people will be called upon to tighten their belts a bit in meeting some of the problems that we face domestically. I don't think that... uh, America can go on a big spending spree with a whole lot of new programs uh, that would add significantly to the federal budget. I believe that the American people, if given the leadership that I would expect to give, would be willing to give this thrust to preserve the peace. Uh, Governor Carter, the next big crisis spot in the world may be Yugoslavia. Uh, President Tito is old and sick, and there are divisions in his country. Uh, It's pretty certain that the Russians are going to do everything they possibly can after Tito dies to force Yugoslavia back into the Soviet camp. But last Saturday you said, and, and this is a quote, I would not go to war in Yugoslavia 
even if the Soviet Union sent in troops. Doesn't that statement practically invite the Russians to intervene in Yugoslavia? Uh, doesn't it discourage Yugoslavs who might be tempted to resist? And wouldn't it have been wiser on your part uh, to say nothing and to keep the Russians in the dark, as President Ford did, and as I think every president has done since, since President Truman? In the last uh, two weeks, I've had a chance to talk to uh, two men who have visited uh, the Soviet Union, Yugoslavia, and China. One is Governor April Harriman, who visited the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. And the other one is James Schlesinger, whom I think you accompanied to uh, China. I got a, a complete report back from those countries, from these two distinguished uh, gentlemen. Mr. Harriman talked to the leaders in Yugoslavia, and I think it's accurate to say that there is no uh, prospect in their opinion of the Soviet Union invading uh, Yugoslavia should uh, Mr. Tito pass away. The present leadership uh, there is, uh, is fairly uniform in, in their purpose. I think it's a close-knit group, uh, and uh, I think it would be unwise for us to say that we will go to war uh, in Yugoslavia uh, if the Soviets should invade, which I think would be an extremely unlikely thing. I have maintained from the very beginning of my campaign and this was a standard answer that I made in response to the Yugoslavian question, that I would never uh, go to war or become militarily involved in the internal affairs of another country unless our own security was directly threatened. Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. <laughs> that's come over America, a change that's great to see. We're living here in peace again, we're going back to work again, it's better than it used to be. I'm feeling good about America. Today, America enjoys the most precious gift of all. We are at peace. We're at peace with the world and at peace with ourselves. America is smiling again. And a great many people believe that the leadership of this steady, dependable man 
can keep America happy and secure. We know we can depend on him to work to keep us strong at home. We know we can depend on him to work to ease tensions among the other nations of the world. We know we can depend on him to make peace his highest priority. Peace with freedom. Is there anything more important than that? Hi, Governor Carter from Georgia. Running for president. I want to ask you to help me next year. In the beginning, Jimmy Carter's campaign was a lonely one. But through the months, more and more people recognized him as a new leader. A man who will change the way this country is run. A competent man who can make our government open and efficient. But above all, an understanding man who can make ours a government of the people once again. Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change. Tonight I can tell you straight away, this nation is sound, this nation is secure, this nation is on the march to full economic recovery and a better quality of life for all Americans. It wasn't that way two years ago. But in one of our darkest hours, America suddenly had a new kind of president. I am acutely aware that you have not elected me as your president by your ballots. So I ask you to confirm me as your president with your prayers. A new leader who had not sought the job but was prepared for it. A tough man when he had to be. But above all, a decent man who from his first hours has worked to restore the honor of the White House. When I came to this Oval Office, I tried to get people to speak up to me, even though they disagreed. I tried to um, make the atmosphere in the Oval Office more relaxed rather than austere, and I just wouldn't be comfortable uh, making people snap to just because I'm president. So the net result is, I think we have certainly created in the Ford administration a non-imperial presidency. He uh, likes to have the people on different sides of the issue in front of him in the office. He sits back and listens and relaxes and uh, at the end of that he is, feels he's much closer to the issue that must be decided than if he were merely to look at a piece of paper. There's one issue that which I disagreed on and it's clear and that's the issue of, of, uh, of busing. I mean my feeling is different from that uh, of the other people in the administration but once again I have the feeling that that the president has taken my views into full consideration and weighing them I, I can't say that his conclusion is wrong. He sets a very high standard and he does it in a way that is not objectionable or abrasive. He doesn't have to, uh, to holler or throw books to let a person know that they haven't performed up to the standard that he expects. This new and quiet style of leadership has not just ended a decade of tension between the people and their president. It's helped create a new optimism about America. Firm leadership against the Congress has helped bring inflation down. Steady leadership has helped produce four million jobs in 17 months. Decisive leadership has helped achieve a world at peace. Calm, dependable leadership has helped build a nation at peace. By keeping our cool and uh, working a good many hours, 
we've gotten it all turned around. I think we'll do better with the Congress in the next two years. We certainly are doing better with the economy. Uh, we don't have any military conflicts to uh, uh, take our mind off of making a better quality of life here in the United States for 215 million Americans. We're on the brink in this country, in my opinion, because we did good things, made tough decisions in the last two and a half years, and I want to be president when we can really blossom in this uh, new era, the new third century of America. Forceful as with the vetoes, bold as with the Mayaguez, but always the power of the office tempered by the decency of the man. He's making us proud again. predict that the American people are going to say that night, Jerry, you've done a good job. Keep right on doing it. When people say, how has Jimmy Carter come from nowhere to where he is today? I tell them it's hard work. I have been campaigning almost continuously since April of last year. One of the things that I have learned is that people everywhere are the same. They may live in different parts of the country. They may make their living a different way, but they share the same things. They want to be secure. They want good things for their families. They want better things for their children than they had for themselves. They're good, honest, hard-working people all over our country. And they don't want anything selfish from government, but they do want government that's fair. Jimmy is honest and unselfish and truly concerned about the country. I think he'll be a great president. He was an Eagle Scout. He was an honor student. He was the most valuable player at Michigan. He was graduated in the top third of Yale Law School while holding a full-time job. He served courageously in World War II. He led his party in the Congress. And in two short years as president, he has brought us peace, helped turn the economy around, and made us feel proud again. Gerald Ford has always been best when the going was toughest. Let's keep him in charge. We've now got 12 million people on welfare chronically. First of all, we need to separate that 10% of welfare recipients who can work completely out of the welfare program, put them under the labor department, education department, teach them how to work, give them a job training, match them with a job and offer it to them. If they don't take it, when it's offered to them, I wouldn't pay them any more benefits. If you agree that our welfare system must be reformed, vote for Jimmy Carter, a leader for a change. Mr. President, I'd like to know, what has your biggest accomplishment been since you've been in office? In the broadest sense, I would say the healing of America. When I became president, there were many, many people who didn't like one another, who were confronting one another. It was a very difficult time. We had difficulties on university campuses. There was a bad mood in the country. Today, everybody has a different attitude. They're all feeling good about one another, whether they agree with them or not. And that healing process has been... I think one of the big accomplishments of 
this administration. If you have people working together and feeling good about one another, then you can work on the other problem. A kind and decent man who's making us proud again. President Ford. The Republicans in their TV commercials are saying that the economy is healthy, employment is high, our place in the world is honored, our leadership is great. I've always felt that if something told to me went against my own experience, there was something wrong, and there is. Because when I look around, this is what I see. Eight million people, every one of them out of work. Every trip to the supermarket, a shock. Cities collapsing, suburbs scared, hospitals closing, teachers fired, crime growing. Police departments, cut. Fire departments, cut. Daycare centers, shut. Welfare skyrocketing. Energy in foreign hands. That's our reality. It won't disappear because the Republicans say it's not there. But that doesn't mean we can't face it and work together and change it. Americans have had to do it before, and we'll do it again. It's a long, tough job. It's time we got started. I've campaigned actively for McGovern. And when he was seeking the presidency in 1972, I campaigned in the primaries, and I campaigned in the general election for him. And now I think the country needs and is ready for Gerald Ford. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, my choice for president is Mr. Ford. Uh, two months ago, I would have voted for Jimmy Carter. Uh, the more I know about Jimmy Carter, the less I think I'll vote for him. Most black are Democrats and the youth of the Democratic Party. And usually I do too, but this time I'm going to go for Ford. I just, I want to see Ford in office again. The Democratic Party funds the programs that I like the best, but uh, Carter is uh, embarrassing me quite a bit with the way he's opening up his mouth lately. I was going to vote for Carter, yes, but I changed my mind. I'm going to vote for Ford. As an independent, I try to vote for the best man for the job. Ford is the best man for the job. And I've been a Democrat all my life, but this time I'm going to change. The stage is now set. You've listened to the campaign ads. Gerald Ford, who's been doing sort of this Rose Garden strategy, gets back out on the campaign trail. And then we get in this final two weeks, and Ford decides they're going to do nothing but campaign around the clock. He leaves the White House not to come back until he comes back victorious. He hopes to make this gap, and this momentum now is clearly swinging in his direction. 33 points down, he started this campaign, and now he's on the trail to trying to close the deal to catch it up and win. And I think he was very confident that he could win uh, the election. And I thought we'd just give you a taste here of the 1976 presidential campaign, one of the greatest almost comebacks in the history of politics. I would compare this only on the thing that I can think of where somebody was this far down with this much of the deck stacked against them that almost won is Ted Stevens in Alaska after he was convicted of, uh, of the, you know, taking gifts. And he, he goes up there and that was a wrongful conviction, by the way, they threw it out later. It was a bunch of nonsense. And it's one of the reasons that I'm so big about prosecutorial misconduct being something that ought to be charged with. That's a whole nother subject. Gerald Ford gets on the stump. He gets out there, and he closes that gap. But you'll see Walter Mondale in here. You'll see Jimmy Carter on the trail. But Gerald Ford and Bob Dole close a 33-point gap to almost win in 1976. It's an incredible thing to see, and unparalleled, I think, in American history. For a, a lover of politics 
and campaigning uh, such as I am, uh, there's this is this is something you're really going to enjoy listening to. On a mission for peace in southern Africa. This is the first administration in Americans' history to develop a comprehensive affirmative African policy. This policy has won respect and trust on that troubled continent. At my direction, Secretary Kissinger is now engaged in an intensive effort. On an intensive effort to help all the parties, black and white, involved in the mounting crisis in Southern Africa, to find a peaceful and just solution to their many and complex differences. Trust is not having to guess what a candidate means. Trust is leveling with the people before the election about what you're going to do after the election. Trust is not being all things to all people, but being the same thing to all people. This is Mondale's second visit to Oregon during the presidential campaign, and it points to the state's Carter campaign's efforts to hold on to its ever-shrinking lead over the Republicans. The vice presidential candidate was met at the airport by some of his more prominent supporters in Oregon. The prominence gave way to enthusiasm in a tent meeting near Madison High School. Mondale's speech kicked off a caucus of Democratic County chairpersons, who are meeting to assess just how well the Democratic ticket is doing in this state. But you're about to make this state go for the Carter ticket on November 2nd. I can see that. Mondale could not resist talking about the environment to the Oregon crowd, but the bulk of the speech attacked the administration's economic policies. His remarks follow yesterday's commerce report that showed the gross national product in the last quarter rising by a disappointing 40%. This country needs a president who will make this economy work to produce jobs and to end inflation. We cannot solve this nation's problems unless everyone who wants a job can get one, and unless a dollar once earned is worth a dollar. There were a handful of picketers in the crowd who were a part of that unemployment figure. They would sporadically chant, we want jobs, not hot air. Mondale was in Portland for less than two hours and was quickly on his way to Seattle. But before he left, he held a brief news conference at the airport. Mondale was asked about another presidential candidate who was in Portland tonight. Will Eugene McCarthy take away vital votes from the Democratic ticket? We think that, that voters are very practical, and they realize that there's only one of two persons who could possibly be elected president, Mr. Carter and Mr. Ford. Those, that's this is Sam Thomas for Channel 8 News from the airport. In my view, 
one very important reason for his precipitous decline in popularity is that since his party's convention, he has relied very, very heavily on the discredited old formula of more promises, more programs, and more spending. The actions that I'm announcing today are designed to strengthen the commitment of all nations to the goal of non-proliferation, change as well as strengthen U.S. domestic policy and programs to support our non-proliferation goals. Let's see the power right fast before we get to the next whistle stop here. How are you? Nice to see you. All right. Good morning. Quite a way to campaign, sir. It sure is. Very new and different. I said that I would not concede a single state. I would not concede a single vote. I said I would campaign from the snowy banks of Minnesota to the sandy plains of Georgia. We're going to be in Louisiana. Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida, and we're going to win. Jimmy Carter set out from Georgia for the final swing on his 22-month-long campaign for the presidency, and he was in a fighting mood. The President Ford Committee is distributing a campaign newspaper called Heartland, which tears into Carter in ways the Georgian calls slanderous and sordid. For instance, there is a cartoon of Carter standing in a church pulpit, holding the Bible in one hand, Playboy magazine in the other, with the caption reading, All Things to All People. Carter is not amused. It does violate uh, the principles of ethics and, and uh, the standards that Mr. Ford and I have both agreed uh, in written statements to come and cause that we, would, that we would uphold. And I would hope that Mr. Ford would, would withdraw it. He's uh, uh, familiar with the, with the paper. He's been asked about it before. And uh, has stated that there's nothing that his campaign is doing of which he's ashamed, but he ought to be ashamed of his paper. When he got to South Carolina, Carter took another swipe at Mr. Ford's tactics. In the process of defending himself against the president's charges that his foreign policy statement on Yugoslavia was inviting trouble. Well, this is uh, another indication, you know, of just politics for the last week. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Ford, on six different occasions, which we've documented, has made flat statements that he would not use troops in certain areas of the world, which I think is appropriate. I think the time for bluffing other nations by claiming we're going to send in troops is past. appreciation and mine for this tremendous welcome we to the home that we love so much, Grand Rapids.
As we came down Monroe Avenue, Democrats, Independents, Republicans, people that Betty and I lived with, that Betty and I loved, that I tried to help over the years when I had the honor of representing this great congressional district. And I thank you for the opportunity. Jimmy Carter wants to cut our defense budget five to seven billion dollars. Look at your children. If he makes a mistake in defense spending, our children will pay the ultimate price. In what coin will that price be paid? Freedom? Their lives? Doesn't Mr. Carter owe it to you to explain cutting defense when the Soviet Union is building an aggressive force of staggering size? President Ford stands on a platform which calls for defense superiority as the best way to keep the peace. Let's keep him on the job. Barbara Walters, Harry Reisner, bring you the news. Good evening. It was not until after shortly, noon, shortly after noon in Washington today that Gerald Ford appeared before newsmen at the White House to concede that he had lost one of the closest presidential elections in recent American history. He conceded with grace and style and dignity, as we'll see. Barbara? Also tonight, Howard K. Smith comments on the difficult and sometimes unpopular work that lies ahead for Jimmy Carter. We'll see the president-elect and his family and his friends on an emotional morning after in Georgia. Likewise, in Washington, President Ford and his family in their public appearance, urging all Americans to unite behind the next president. Pollster Lou Harris will be here to tell us how Jimmy Carter put together his winning combination of electoral votes and how a history-making coalition of whites and blacks put him over the top. All right? Any further proof is needed tonight that yesterday's election was close. Consider the fact that in both Ohio and Oregon, no winner has been declared in the presidential race and may not be for days. That's how close it is in those states. We can see how the different regions of the country voted on this election map. The 22 states projected for Carter and blue, the darker color if you're watching in black and white. Carter also won the District of Columbia. The Ford states are in yellow, the lighter color, 26 states in the president's column. Carter was very strong in the Deep South, strong in the populous states of the East, and in the border states. The president won most of his electoral votes in the Midwest, the Southwest, and the West. Well, nevertheless, Harry, the next president will be Jimmy Carter, and our ABC News count shows these projected electoral votes. 272 for Carter, only two more than the absolute minimum needed by the winner, and 235 for Mr. Ford. With more than 90% of the popular votes counted, Jimmy Carter's margin remains at under 2 million. The way it was all through the long night of counting, about 40,276,000 for the winner, and more than 38.5 million for the loser. In the final frantic hours of campaigning, President Ford exhorted his supporters for a home run, a touchdown. Today, appearing in the White House press room, the president said to reporters, we lost it in the last quarter. Tom Gerald has more on Mr. Ford's concession appearance this afternoon. With daylight came the grim reality. Mr. Ford went to bed believing he might still somehow win. But at 9 a.m. Eastern time, his top aides marched into his office and said it was over. The president assembled his family and because he had nearly lost his voice campaigning, asked his wife to read a telegram after he spoke briefly. 
I do um, want to express on a personal basis my appreciation and that of my family for the friendship that all of us have had. Let me call on the, uh, the real spokesman for the family, Patty. The president asked me to tell you that he telephoned President-elect Carter a short time ago and congratulated him on his victory. It's been the greatest honor of my husband's life to have served his fellow Americans during two of the most difficult years in our history. The president urges all Americans to join him in giving your united support to President-elect Carter as he prepares to assume his new responsibilities. I'd like to read you the telegram the President sent to President-elect Carter this morning. Dear Jimmy, it is apparent now that you have won our long and intense struggle for presidency. I congratulate you on your victory. As one who has been honored to serve the people of this great land, both in Congress and as president, I believe that we must now put divisions of the campaign behind us and unite the country once again in the common pursuit of peace and prosperity. Appearing fatigued and emotionally drained, Mr. Ford walked through the press room greeting reporters. He accepted the close returns as final and demanded no recounts. He showed no bitterness either toward Mr. Carter or the newsmen who had pursued him down the long campaign trail. Tom Jarrell, ABC News at the White House. If the mood at the White House today was somber, it was in turn ecstatic and tearful last night and today in Plains, Georgia. President-elect James Earl Carter Jr. with as little sleep as everybody else, in a thoughtful and thankful mood, thanking those who backed him and already assigning staff members to work with the White House to make sure of a smooth transition to the highest office in this country. Sam Donaldson has spent the entire political campaign with Jimmy Carter, and these last few hours were no exception. Jimmy Carter may have taken a nap this morning, but not a long one. He didn't get home until shortly before 8, and President Ford was on the phone around 11. But that was a call Carter said in the mid-afternoon statement he was glad to receive. I deeply appreciate the call from President Ford and his gracious expression of congratulations and cooperation. I express my admiration for him and for the strong, well-planned, an effective campaign that he ran. I'm particularly grateful for his offer of close cooperation during this transition period between the election and inauguration day, and also during the next administration. One of the very first tasks facing any new president is the unification of our country after a close and hard-fought election. President Ford's characteristically gracious statement today will make that job much easier for me. 
Carter said transition arrangements are already underway between the two staffs. He promised to elaborate in a news conference tomorrow or Friday. Then the plan is shaping up for Carter to vacation somewhere away from planes, perhaps in Georgia, perhaps in the Caribbean. Shortly before dawn this morning, Carter returned to South Georgia, his daughter Amy in his arms, from his Atlanta victory celebration. Returned to Plains, where relatives and well-wishers have been waiting all night. His brother, Billy. His mother, Miss Lillian. And when he spoke, there was exuberance, sudden emotion, and a solemn pledge. I told you I didn't intend to lose. I came all the way through. Through 22 months and I didn't get choked up until I... I'll be doing the best I can to prepare myself to be a president of which all of you will be proud. And I believe that I can make the kind of leadership in the White House that can tap the greatness that's in all of you. It is fair to consider the closeness of the race and what it turned on, the narrowness of the mandate and the difficulty ahead in exercising it. But the fact remains, Jimmy Carter, to use his own words, was a man who didn't hold public office, who didn't have much money or a big campaign organization, who came from the South, but overcame it all to make political history, and now promises to do his best to go on to make presidential history. Sam Donaldson, ABC News, Plains, Georgia. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. 
If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.